Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Srimate Bhakti Vedanta Swami Niti Namane Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pacharane Nirvase Sasanivadi Paskatyadi Satanane Vandeham Sri Guru Sri Yuta Padakamalam Sri Gurun Vaishnavamsha Sri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitams Tam Sajivam Advoitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Sri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Sri Vishakam Vitamscha Vantakalpa Jubisha Kibasindavyevata Patita Nam Pavanavio Vaishnavavya Namo Namaha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya it's June 1st, 2022, from Hawaii, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 5, Chapter 1, Text 2. Nanunam Mukta Sanganam Tadrishanam Dvijarshaba Certainly. Mukta Sanganam, who are free from attachment. Tadrishanam, such. Dvija Rishabha, O greatest of the Brahmanas, Viheshu. To family life. To family life. Abhinivesha. Excessive attachment. Excessive attachment. I am. I am. This. This. Pumsam. Of persons. Of persons. Babitum. Babitum. To be. Arhati is possible. Srila Prabhupada's translation. Devotees are certainly liberated persons. 
Therefore, O greatest of the Brahmanas, they cannot possibly be absorbed in family affairs. Purport In Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, it is said that by executing devotional service to the Lord, one can understand the transcendental position of the living being in the Supreme Personality of Godhead. The Supreme Personality of Godhead cannot be understood by any means except Bhakti. The Lord confirms this in Srimad Bhagavatam 11.14.21 Bhaktyaham ekaya grayaha Only by executing devotional service can one appreciate me. Similarly, in Bhagavad Gita 18.55, Lord Krishna says, Bhaktyamam abhijanati Simply by discharging devotional service, one can understand me. Thus, for a bhakta to become attached to family affairs is impossible, since a bhakta and his associates are liberated. Everyone is searching for ananda, or bliss, but in the material world there can never be any bliss. It is possible only in devotional service. Attachment for family affairs and devotional service are incompatible. Therefore, Maharaj Prickett was somewhat surprised to hear that Maharaj Priyavrata was simultaneously attached to devotional service and to family life. Nanunam mukta sanganam tadrishanam dvivarshaba grihesh babi nivesho yam pumsam bhavitum arhati. Devotees are certainly liberated persons. Therefore, O greatest of the Brahmanas, they cannot possibly be absorbed in family affairs. So we're not going to answer this question today. That will be in upcoming verses, how Maharaj Priyavrata could be both a great devotee and uh, be attached to family affairs. But we're going to focus here on the question. So we've just completed in the Bhagavatam the discussion between Vidura and Maitreya. And it was mentioned by Maitreya that Maharaj Priyavrata had been a student of Narada and he was renounced, and yet he got married and he was managing the earth. And Vidura didn't have any question about that. It was, it was kind of the end of the discussion, and uh, Vidura left, but Maharaj Prickett has this question. So he's saying that there's an apparent contradiction, as Prabhupada writes in the purport, attachment for family affairs and devotional service are incompatible. So if something's incompatible, how can both exist? Uh, this is what Srila Prabhupada would call an apparent contradiction. So these apparent contradictions, or Prabhupada will sometimes call them difficult statements, uh, are, occur throughout the Shastra. They also occur in the uh, commentaries or works of our Acharyas, including uh, Srila Prabhupada. Uh, I wouldn't say that they're frequent, but they certainly are not uncommon. That the Shastra itself will present paradoxes. Uh, I tell this story quite a bit, but in our Gurukula, we would teach the children 48 key Bhagavad Gita verses. And that number in those verses were arrived at after consultation with Gopi Paranadana Prabhu and Dravida Prabhu. We're trying to narrow down uh, what verses the children should learn. We were aiming for 25, but we couldn't get it below 48. Anyway, one of them is the verse, Maya Tatamidam Sarvam Jagat Avyaktamurtina Matstani Sarvabhutani Natchaham Te Sravastita. 
by me in my unmanifested form, this entire universe is pervaded, all beings are in me, but I am not in them. So, I remember one year, we would teach these verses every year, but I remember one year, uh, we would... We were explaining the verse on a Monday, and then the students would practice all during the week. So after the Monday's explanatory class, we had a, a break time, 10-15 minute break time. And I overheard two of the six-year-old students discussing that verse. And they said, uh, Mother Ermila definitely doesn't understand Krishna consciousness. She said that Krishna says, all beings are in me, but I am not in them. And that's not right. Because Krishna is in every atom, and he is in everyone's heart. I know, I've heard, that Krishna is in everyone's heart, and Krishna is in every atom. So not only is everything is Krishna, but Krishna is also in everything. To say, all beings are in me, but I am not in them, is wrong. So of course I found that very humorous. But this is an apparent contradiction. It's a paradox. How does Krishna say, Sarvasya Chahamrati Sandavisto, I am seated in everyone's heart, and then he says, all beings are in me, but I am not in them. This appears to be contradictory. And here, Maharaj Bhaktit is saying, wait a minute, Mar- Maharaj Priyavata, King Priyavata, is a liberated soul, he's a great devotee, and yet he's attached in family life, excessively attached here. Uh, he has excessive attachment to his family so that's not possible I mean we ran into a similar situation of course with Gadadhar Pandit and Pundarik Vijanidhi where Gadadhar Pandit was taken to see Pundarik Vijanidhi and Pundarik Vijanidhi was living in great opulence as a householder you know, silk sheets and, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, so many things. <laughs> uh, so uh, he had some doubt. How can this person actually be a great devotee? And then, of course, uh, the person he was with, I forget who that was, he recites the verse about Krishna giving liberation to Putana, and Pundarik Vidyanidhi immediately uh, starts showing the, the sattvic abhavs, the involuntary ecstatic symptoms and Ganadhar Pandit could understand that although apparently he was attached in household or life uh, actually he was a great devotee a similar situation happens when Mahaprabhu meets Ramananda Roy at the Kaveri in South India where uh, Mahaprabhu is embracing Ramananda Roy and Mahaprabhu is a sannyasi born in a Brahmin family Ramananda Roy is a Kayasta who were considered Shudras at the time um, and he was a householder and a governor, and the smart Brahmanas couldn't understand this. Why would a sannyasi, a sannyasi Brahmana, have an interest in, interest in a shudra grahasta like this? Uh, they saw it as incompatible. So what we are supposed to do when we find things that are incompatible is we are supposed to ask. We are supposed to ask our guru or uh, diksha guru, shiksha guru, or senior Vaishnavas, we're supposed to make an inquiry. So how are we going to deal with these situations? Now, in, our, in the ISKCON hermeneutic system, 
we have a, a hermeneutical principle that deals with this exact uh, situation. And this is principle that number our 14th principle, principle number 14. And the way we word it is insight emerges through app dialogue and through mediation, resolution, or reconciliation of paradox, apparent contradiction, and multiple views. And in fact, in our hermeneutics lessons, and lesson six, we focus on this. How do we deal with uncertainty? How do we deal with doubts, ambiguities, differences of opinion, and so forth? Uh, where there's apparent contradiction. So we're going to look at some of the ways that we deal with this. We're not going to go into great depth, but we'll look at some of the ways. Uh, One is that there's different answers for different people. Uh, Just like uh, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu told Lord Nityananda to marry, and he told Raghunath Bhatta not to marry. And, you know, this is different answers for different people. I was approached just a couple days ago by a woman who's 38 years old, never married, and she said, should I get married? And I said, well, most human beings do better if they get married, but you know, tell me about your situation. How are you doing? What kind of relationships do you have with other people? How, how is your emotional stability? I mean, I was asking her all kinds of questions about her own situation because the answer is going to be different. Some people should not enter into family life and business and job and home, and and other people definitely should. So there's different instructions in different places. And these instructions may appear to be contradictory, but they are meant for different people, or they are meant for a person in different stages. And just like Prabhupada writes in the 18th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, that a, a sannyasi, when Krishna says that uh, yagya should be continued even by the great souls, right? tapas, yagya, and dhana should be done even by great souls. It purifies even the great souls. And Prabhupada writes in that purport how yagya, that marriage is also a yagya. Yagya means a ceremony of connection with God. Prabhupada translates it as sacrifice, which in English would practically be a synonym for austerity, a very close synonym for austerity. But the, the meaning of yagya is it's some kind of ceremony for connection with the divine. I mean, of course, in 2022, people don't always see marriage like that. Of course, many people have a wedding in a, in a religious venue. But people nowadays in 2022 see marriages as something different. They, they see it as simply an adult, consensual, uh, hopefully lifetime uh, sexual arrangement. But it actually is a ceremony of connection. And Prabhupada says there that even a sannyasi should encourage a young man to have this vivaha yagya, to have this marriage ceremony. He says to make his mind peaceful. So then when the person is older, then renunciation is encouraged. 
right? the, the very things that are encouraged when you're, you know, 22, 25, are discouraged when you're 55 or 60. So it's, and this is one way of understanding apparent contradictions. Prabhupada would sometimes say that in a pharmacy, there are so many medicines. And of course, medicines are apparently contradictory. There are some medicines to raise your blood pressure and some medicines to lower your blood pressure. Right? And it depends who you are. What is, what is your situation? What medicines do you need? And again, one may need contradictory medicines at different times in their life. So another way of understanding apparent contradictions or paradoxes is that there are layers of meaning. And all of us experience this phenomena when we study Shastra and we study the works of the Acharyas that we, we read it, we study it, we meditate on it and a year later or five or ten years later we read and we study the same thing and it means something different to us. I was just last weekend in Washington, D.C. Ramapad Swami and Mahatma Prabhu were teaching some seminars. And Mahatma Prabhu was teaching about humility and he said something that I found really interesting. He said that some devotees were talking to him about humility and he was thinking, why are you talking about humility? This isn't anywhere in, in Prabhupada's books. And then he said when he went and did a search on the Vedabase, he found it was everywhere. He found there were thousands and thousands of references to humility and being humble and so forth. And he was astonished that somehow he had missed it. Right? And it was, it was ironic because he was saying this in the seminar, but uh, just that very morning at breakfast, he was telling me, oh, such and such thing is not anywhere in Prabhupada's books. And I said, it's all over the place in Prabhupada's books. I said, you just are, don't know what to look for. I said, you think it's, it's something that it's not, and therefore you're not finding it. So this is, again, a very, very common occurrence that the hidden layers of meaning become revealed to us in time as our consciousness becomes purified as we progress in bhakti. And therefore, something that's apparently contradictory, an apparent paradox, as we progress in bhakti, uh, becomes not so. And I, again, I'm sure all of us have such experiences. I remember uh, some years ago, I think it was 2006, so I had read something in one of Vishnu Chakravati Thakur's commentaries on the Bhagavatam, in a Bhagavatam verse, and all of a sudden it like opened up a whole world to me. I, I was like, wow, I, I didn't realize that that's what this verse was about. And I was so excited and <laughs> enthused and enlivened. So I was staying with some devotees, and I went to the, devo the, the devotees I was staying with, and I said, look, 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 look at what Vishwanath Chagavati Thakur says here in this commentary. And the devotees uh, weren't appreciative. <laughs> they said, no, that's not right. You're not, you're not reading it right. You're not understanding it right. You know, that, that's not... That's not what it is. Uh, you're, you're wrong. And I felt very despondent, like I had had this big balloon that somebody had popped, you know. It was, it was really very depressing. And so I 
I went to a picture of Srila Prabhupada and I said, Dear Srila Prabhupada, you please resolve this for me. And maybe a day or two later, when I was listening to a Prabhupada lecture, uh, Srila Prabhupada uh, very, very clearly explained that what I had understood in that commentary was correct. Now, I did not go back to those devotees and correct them. I, I left that alone. But I just found it interesting that uh, they were able to give me evidence for their position. So there was evidence for each position. Uh, you know, so that's... <laughs> That's also maybe true. But I was thinking, you know, as you go deeper, you understand that what is the, what is the real meaning. And you can't, I mean, one, one thing I learned from that is you can't force people to go deeper. You know, the people I was staying with, their understanding was, was very surface. So another way you can deal with it is to realize that there is mystery and play not to try to collapse the paradox and come up with one answer. So I, I recently finished a book by David Haberman, who's a initiated devotee in the Balabha Sampradaya, called Loving Stones. It's about Govardhan. And he writes extensively in the book about, this is not a paradox exactly within scripture itself, well, that is also true. But he writes about a paradox between religions where there are many religious systems that would see worship of stones as the most degraded, most fallen, most foolish type of idolatry possible. That, you know, at least if you carve the stone into something, but if you just take a stone and worship it, that they, they see this as uh, abject foolishness. You're taking the, the, you know, just some gross dull matter and attributing divinity to it. And he explains in depth how, historically speaking, that idolatry has been seen by the Abrahamic religions as kind of a code word for the most terrible things. And just kind of like in our, in our Hare Krishna movement, a Mayavadi is, is kind of an all-encompassing code phrase. You know, if we really want to talk about something that appears to be religious but is actually harmful and degraded and offensive, then we'll say, oh, that's Mayavada. And so similarly, the Abrahamic religions, if they want to just label something as apparently religious but actually extremely harmful and degraded and satanic, <laughs> then they'll say, well, it's idolatrous. And this concept of idolatry was very expanded into all different areas. And of course, there was a lot of persecution done of different religions that appeared to be idolatrous. And again, the, the worst form of idolatry was stone worship. And so David Haberman is bringing up the point that, well, there's all these millions of people uh, in the Hindu tradition who are intelligent and educated and, and worship stones and feel some reciprocation and how are these two points of view going to be uh, accommodated how can we how can the advocates of different religious systems talk to each other so he advocates a playful attitude and in fact he talks about how when Krishna lifted Govardhan Hill and when Govardhan Hill was manifested as Krishna himself that this was in the context of Leela or, or play of the Lord. And so in fact, uh, 
Paradox leads to this kind of playful mystery where both things can be held at the same time. Where it can be true that here is somebody who is both uh, a liberated person in bhakti and very attached to his family and yet being liberated in bhakti and being very attached to one's family are incompatible. How can, how can both of those concepts be true at the same time without canceling each other's out, without collapsing the paradox? And it's, it's very challenging to do that. It, it's not easy to do that. Uh, an example that we use in our hermeneutics course is that in chapter 8 of the Bhagavad Gita, there's a verse, we get the number, where Srila Prabhupada says that one can worship any form of the Lord. Ram, the Singha, Varaha, he has a list. Uh, and then in 18, I think it's 1865 of the Bhagavad Gita, Prabhupada says one should not worship any form of the Lord like Ram, the Singha, Varaha, he also gives a list. He said, but one should worship only Krishna. He said, in fact, like in chapter 8, he says one can fix his mind on any form of the Lord and in chapter 18 he says one should fix his mind on Krishna and one should not divert his attention to any other form so I remember having a discussion once with a devotee uh, one of these discussions where I was wasting my human form of life where I was using this as an example of a paradox that where in order to understand it you don't collapse the paradox you simply understand it in a playful uh, mood of mystery rather than trying to collapse the paradox. And this devotee could not even theoretically grasp that such a concept was possible. What to speak of, of uh, acceptable. So what his response to me was is there's no paradox at all. There's no apparent contradiction at all. And I said, well, there is definitely an apparent contradiction. In one purport, Prabhupada says, you can fix your mind on Nisingadev. And in the other purport, he says, don't divert your attention to Nisingadev, only fix your mind on Krishna. I said, it is impossible to both fix your mind on Nisingadev and not divert your attention to Nisingadev. I said, those are mutually incompatible, as far as using the word here, incompatible, those are mutually incompatible situations. If I don't divert my attention to something, I cannot simultaneously fix my mind on that something. It's just impossible. They're diametrically opposed. Anyway, he couldn't grasp that. He just, just simply could not grasp that. And my conclusion was he couldn't grasp that because his faith his level of faith didn't allow him to consider that Srila Prabhupada made two mutually uh, incompatible statements in the same book in different places, ten chapters apart, chapter 8 and chapter 18. And his conception was that all of Srila Prabhupada's statements must be fully compatible. And therefore, my seeing these as diametrically opposed was some sort of illusion on my part, and that... Uh, you know, actually they were completely harmonious. And of course he harmonized it in the most simple way. He said, yes, you should worship Krishna, but you can also worship these other incarnations. And I said, okay, fine, but that's not what it says. 
You know, that may be what it says elsewhere, but I said that certainly isn't what it says here at all. And I pointed out to him, uh, again, as I wasted my time because he never did come to understand anything I was talking about, but I pointed out to him that if we were to take the instruction in chapter 18, in 1865, literally, then we could never have in our ISKCON temples uh, any deities other than Krishna. In fact, although Chaitanya's name was not mentioned, theoretically at least one could not even worship Lord Chaitanya. And we could certainly not observe festivals in relation to the others in other incarnations. We couldn't observe Ram Navami and the Singha Chaturdasi and, and Bala and, you know, etc. because that would certainly be diverting our attention to them. In fact, we could take it so far if we, if we took 1865 as an absolute literal instruction, we could take it so far as to say that we shouldn't even read the sections of the Bhagavatam that are uh, describing those incarnations. And that would be a, a perfectly legitimate understanding of that purport in terms of the English language. I mean, what's also very interesting in that particular purport in 1865, which is also uh, a paradox, is that Srila Prabhupada says that we should uh, fix our, our mind on the form of Krishna that was present before Arjuna with two hands with peacock feather playing a flute. Now we know that Krishna on the battlefield of Kurukshetra was not playing a flute and although he's often depicted with a peacock feather, uh, he probably wasn't wearing the peacock feather either. So we kind of have this thing in ISKCON at least that a peacock feather is the symbol of God um, we argue about whether or not deities other than Krishna or Lord Chaitanya or Jagannath can have a peacock feather, and they'll say you can't put a peacock feather on Balaram, you can't put a peacock feather on Lord Nichananda or Lord Nisingadev. And it's so silly because the Bhagavatam describes that in Vrindavan, the residents in general use peacock feathers as decorations. The cowherd boys, the gopis, uh, they're all regularly using peacock feathers as decorations. This is not some exclusive insignia of Krishna's. And uh, the likelihood is overwhelming that when Krishna is not in Vrindavan, that peacock feathers are not part of his ornamentation. Uh, I mean, they might be at some time, but not like that he has to have his peacock feather in Dwarka, just like he's not generally playing his flute in Dwarka. Uh, so anyway, there's a paradox there, because... Prabhupada saying Krishna as he appears before Arjuna, and that's not the way that Krishna appears before Arjuna. So that is also very confusing and uh, mutually incompatible. So it's not that these collapse. It's not that we say, well, the statement in, in chapter 8 is correct, and the statement in chapter 18 is wrong, or the statement in chapter 18 is correct, and the statement in chapter 8 is wrong, or even to make one of them absolute and the other one relative. If we make the statement, and, and I would say the tendency would probably be to make the statement in chapter 8 absolute and the statement in chapter 18 relative, uh, because Srila Prabhupada definitely did not structure the International Society for Krishna Consciousness along the, the strictly literal meaning of what he said in chapter 18. So that could be the tendency, but the tendency could go the other way as well, that one could say that a Prabhupada's instructions in chapter 18 are actually the absolute instructions, we should just fix our mind on Krishna, and Krishna in Vrindavan with his peacock feather and his flute, and the instructions in chapter 8 are relative, and they're like a concession, well, if you can't fix your mind on Krishna, fine, you, can, you shouldn't divert your attention 
but you can. So that's a tendency where one collapses the paradox, where one makes uh, one of the instructions absolute and the other one relative. However, another way of dealing with it is to say that these are both absolute instructions. The paradox doesn't have to collapse at all, that we can see it in terms of mystery and in terms of play that one can uh, not divert one's attention to any form other than Krishna, and at the same time, one can fix one's mind on forms other than Krishna. Now, one way of understanding this playfully is given in uh, Raghunath Goswami's Manashiksha, verse 2, where he says that one should see Lord Chaitanya, the son of Mother Sachi, as Krishna, the son of Nanda Maharaj. And so, it is possible... To, to divert one's attention to some form of the Lord other than Krishna without diverting one's attention if one simply sees, oh, Nasingadeva is Krishna, Ram is Krishna, Varaha is Krishna, Kurma is Krishna, and Krishna having this particular mood at this particular time, but there is my Krishna. Uh, just like a person whose father is a police officer, you know, if he sees his father with his uniform and his gun and so forth, oh, there's my father. He's in his his police uniform. And there's other ways also, certainly. I mean, it, when we've discussed these, these par- this paradox of these two purports, a number of people have brought up that in Chapter 18, Srila Prabhupada is, is speaking very ecstatically, that he's speaking of his, you know, Krishna there with his peacock feather and his flute as he is standing before Arjuna, and one should not even divert his attention. But he's speaking due to ecstatic love, and he's not speaking to give an instruction it's in a different mood uh, than that now when we take these different situations of apparent contradictions and, and paradoxes and um, one thing there's a few things to keep in mind that uh, one is not to always play the inconceivable card every Marge will say that don't always play the inconceivable card so a chinta beta beta tattva refers to something very specific in our philosophy. It refers to the fact that uh, the jivas and God are both totally one and totally different, that the jivas are totally one and totally different from each other, that the jivas and the world are totally one and totally different, that God and the world are totally one and totally different, and that God and his expansions are totally one and totally different. Uh, that's what a chinta beta beta tattva refers to, it's not a way of dealing with anything that's paradoxical or apparently contradictory. And we'll see devotees what we call playing this inconceivability card. You know, oh, okay, well, it's inconceivably, both are inconceivably true. Okay, end of story, let's move on to something else. And, and this is really what we call a, a cop-out. It's, it's just, you're not really answering the question. You know, how are both of these things true? Well, they're both true and they're both not true and that's it and you can't understand it and it's inconceivable, end of story. Aravinda Suprabhu often talks about this also. That it, it's not that you can throw everything into the achincha beta beta uh, category. Another thing that's very important is that when we're making decisions about our own life, you know, it's very tempting to use the particular quote that suits our material desires. 
you know, when we find these areas of, of paradox and we find these areas of apparent contradiction. And it is very, very tempting to say, oh, well, I'm going to follow this one <laughs> and not this one. I mean, we said in the beginning that often these paradoxes are because there's one instruction meant for one person and a different opposite instruction meant for someone else or different instructions meant at different times. But in making that decision about how to apply these to our own life, it is extremely important that we consult with guru or senior Vaishnavas and engage in, in prayer and meditation and not just so we're not just jumping to something where we're trying to find an excuse for whatever we want to do anyway. And of course using Shastra like this, using the words of Guru and Acharyas like this, is very common. And Prabhupada would talk about don't keep your Guru as a pet, which took me a long time to understand why he said that. But, you know, people do that. They have a Guru just so they can put up the Guru's picture and say they have a Guru, and then they pick and choose whatever they want to follow. Oh, this is very common. I was hearing it the other day, Prabhupada said, don't, don't cut off the, the head of the of the golden goose, you know, the, your goose lays a golden egg and you don't want to feed it, so you just try to have the egg-laying part, and then, of course, you have nothing at all. So it's, it behooves us to take advice for our situation. That's one reason why that in addition to Shastra and Sadhu, there is Guru. Uh, Shastra is giving, Shastra is like a pharmacy that's giving so many different medicines, and the Sadhus have many different examples there's, you know, we have Bhakti Sanatya Sarasvati, who's a lifetime brahmachari, we have Bhakti Vinod and Srila Prabhupada, who are Grahastas. But we have, we have so many different examples among the sadhus. We have Raghunath Das Goswami, who left his household life at a very young age and performed austerity that's practically inconceivable. I mean, he lived into his 90s, and how he lived into his 90s with eating practically nothing is, is almost inconceivable. And not only eating practically nothing, but... You know, I mean, how do you get nutrition out of eating old rotten rice that you just wash and eat with salt? I mean, it would seem that you would have so many uh, deficiencies and nutritional problems. So we have these, you know, all these different examples of, of the sadhus. And what are we going to follow? Different instructions of the shastra, different examples of the sadhus. You know, what are we... And then we have Ramananda Roy, who was living in Puri with his family... I, on a, he had a generous pension given to him by Maharaj Pratipurudra, and he was living in his household life. You know, up to the point Ramananda Roy was, was instructing young girls in dancing, and he was massaging them and, and so forth as part of his instruction of them. So, which, you know, are we going to follow Raghunath Swami? Are we going to follow Ramananda Roy? Are we going to follow something? What are we going to do? Just looking at Shastra and Sadhus will be confused. And, of course, even with Guru, Guru is going to give different instructions at different times to different people, but the idea of having Guru is the Guru gives us personal instructions. That the Diksha Guru, Shiksha Guru, that we can get personal instructions for us, and those instructions may change. In the instruction for us, the Guru may instruct us one way when we're 20, and another way when we're 30, and another way when we're 40, and... You know, or in different circumstances, sometimes the guru may say, yes, just go and do this. And other times the guru will say, no, don't do that, <laughs> even though it may be the same thing. And that way we can make decisions 
that are the best for us in terms of our spiritual life and in terms of ethics and morality for that particular time, place, and circumstance. So this asking these questions and discussing and trying to get clarification on things that appear to be contradictory or paradoxes is a very important part. So this is, one should ask these questions and one should learn hermeneutic techniques in order to get these questions resolved. So we have some time now for questions. Uh, if anybody has any any questions, we could certainly discuss. I have a question. Sure. Yes? Yes. Um, Hare Krishna, thank you very much for the class. And I was thinking that when Krishna left Vrindavan and went to, to Mathura and Dwarka, the gopis, of course, they were so distressed. And then when the eclipse uh, appeared and they met in between Mathura and Vrindavan, they were kind of, I'm not sure, but somehow disappointed because it was not the same Krishna, although they were same. So sometimes in our lives, um, we, we may have Krishna coming... I mean, a feeling of Krishna coming sweet and close and friendly, and sometimes Krishna comes to us like distant and like matura or distant away, or may come angry because we have so many anarthas to clear up from the heart, so he may come angry like Nisinghadev, clearing up the heart. So... For the Gopis was different. They, when they saw Krishna dressed like a king, they were feeling like disappointed. But in the practicing stage here, where, whether Krishna comes distant or if he comes sweet and close or comes like angry, if we see always in those moments, oh, this is my Krishna, then that's and feel happy that he's coming, whatever he may come like. That's a way to to surrender, to improving in, or we should only aspire to see our most loving, dear Krishna sweet in a specific uh, mood. Well, however Krishna comes to you is how you're seeing him. I'm kind of confused. Yeah, sometimes we we may see Krishna. I mean, not Krishna, but the circumstance around. Oh, Krishna is bringing this moment, which is sweet, and he's coming by in a sweet mood. And sometimes he's coming distant. And uh, and if we ac- accept like like that, happy to have Krishna however he may come to us is that a way to surrender to him? Well it certainly can be but still as Lord Brahma said that the devotees each have their own particular form that they want to worship the Lord in. Sure. Yes. Just like the gopis when they see Narayana they don't just say oh great they say where is Krishna? <laughs> Sometimes it, it doesn't come again as sweet as sometimes comes. Well, that you know, the Lord's independent, like you say, we have to surrender. At the same time, 
we may have our particular way we like to see the Lord. So both is accepting the way comes and of course having a specific taste or inclination or attraction to see him in a specific mood. Yes. Okay. Uh, what is hermeneutics? Can you tell me what that is? Yeah, it's, it's basically a set of, of qualities, principles, and tools that are used to understand the Shastra. And, and statements of Acharyas also. Could you give some example of the tools? Uh, sure. I mean, if you, if you go, there is a YouTube channel on hermeneutics. We have four lessons up already that maybe I could share. But, sure. Let me just pull up a document. Uh, Ramananda, are you able to give me permission to share my screen? Yep. There you go, switch presenter. Do you see it? Yes, I do. I see. Okay. Okay, so this is our basic book. These are available for free download online. So these are the qualities necessary for doing hermeneutics, humility in a service mood, fidelity to track text and tradition, discerning search for truth, honest and authentic conversation, openness to change and transformation, benevolence and generosity. And then here we have principles. So this is Iskan hermeneutics. So the overarching principle is understanding the tradition through Srila Prabhupada, accepting Srila Prabhupada as a representative and conveyor of the essence of the tradition and parampara in the most appropriate way for our understanding and application. Now that really means we understand the parampara through Srila Prabhupada and Srila Prabhupada through the parampara. That Krishna is the object, purpose, and ultimate goal of all Shastric knowledge. Shabda is the highest pramana. Scripture provides the theory and method for its own understanding. That we have to identify categories of texts and categories of statements within texts to illuminate their meaning. That hierarchies are present within and between Shastras. That scriptures are consistent and coherent and namely meaningful dialogue between part and whole. There exists universal truths applicable in all times, in all places, and to all people. Authentic understanding and exposition of Shastra are consistent with Siddhanta. Summary statements of Gaudiya Vaishnava Siddhanta are included in Shastra texts. Shastra both transcends and addresses context within which it is revealed. Consideration of context, including historical circumstance, is essential to gaining Shastra insight. Texts are properly understood and explained in terms of the intended reader or audience. 
Knowledge is not simply a collection of correct objective information, but it is invariably mediated through the knower and the one we discussed today. Insight emerges through apt dialogue and through mediation, resolution, or reconciliation and paradox, apparent contradiction, and multiple views. Shastra mercifully reciprocates with those who study it and compassionately reach out to others. The meaning of Shastra is directly revealed to one with full faith in Guru Shastra and Krishna. By purifying the senses, bhakti removes the conditioning that clouds and distorts perception. Realization requires virtual personal transformation and the assimilation of knowledge by experience. The highest truth aims at the welfare of all. Texts are understood according to the mood and intent of the author or speaker. We understand Srila Prabhupada's statements by his application of them in relation to his mood and mission. Truth is conveyed with logic, reason, and exemplary character through the system of parampara. Parampara is perpetrated through discernment of meaning more than mere repetition of words. Education in Shastra, delivered by the self-realized teacher, guru, helps preserve disciplic succession. So those are the 24 principles and the overarching principles. Then we have 40 hermeneutical tools. So the tools allow you to use the principles. You can't use the principles without tools. Here are the tools. How does it point toward Krishna? Consider pramanas. Seek guidance from Shastra itself. Look at direct and indirect meanings. Some statements in Shastra are intentionally delusive or obscure, while others are direct, identifying the genre. That Shastric statements can be understood in terms of tattva, rasa, or both, that there are ten topics of the Bhagavatam, nested narratives. There's text that has a higher level of authority, using Madhva's hierarchy of Shastras, giving more authority to statements in scriptures that favor sattva guna, looking for a statement of equal force or meaning, Chronologically, later statements are often stronger using the six stages of strength. That's from Jiva Goswami. Uh, different levels of authority, authorities to various commentators looking for a key statement, studying holistically and repeatedly, referencing Siddhanta, using six criteria to know the import and conclusion of a work. Uh, that some of Srila Prabhupada's statements have universal application, others are applicable in a particular context. context. Look for any way in which Guru Sadhu Shastra define historical or cultural context. Consider one's own cultural and, his, and individual perspectives along with one's life experience. Then the Anubandha Chachutaya, the sort four traditional context questions, mediated, unmediated knowledge, understanding Shastra from many angles, looking at Vada, Jalpa, and Bitanda. Understanding is only possible with Jiva Doya. Prayer, surrender, and waiting for revelation, purification, and immersion, repeated study, having the right motives and correct reasons, choosing the most merciful meaning, considering the mood when understanding the intent, that there's practical intention in terms of some some are injunctions, some are praise, how did Prabhupada apply his statements, understanding a statement as a specific part of an argument, referring to parampara, understanding the meaning of a word or phrase according to the author's intent, and seeking guidance from those more experienced in hermeneutics. And we also have a sample hermeneutical path where first we look at these different qualities, you know, in relationship to ourself. I'm not going to go through this. And uh, then comparing our statement to a concise statement of Siddhanta, and then using some of the hermeneutical tools. Do we have a, a course on I mean, this? you're teaching this to children? 
no. No. Yeah, this sounds like a college course. Oh, we teach it, we teach it to adults. So far, we've we've only taught it. The Sastric Advisory Council has only taught it to leaders or people with at least a Bhakti Shastri degree. Um, we, we haven't made it a, a fully open um, course, although, you know, I'd like to, we, we can have, the first three lessons could be taught as an open course. Uh, we're about to, uh, tonight actually, we'll be teaching the first three lessons to the students in the GBC college. On YouTube, the first four of eight lessons are available. There's a playlist, and the materials are for free download on the GBC website under resource under resources, and they're also available on a SAC site. So all the materials that is the uh, the foundational materials, the supplementary materials, the student book, and the teacher book. I didn't expect such a yeah. answer to my question. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> so I found this class transcription worthy. I think it would help many devotees. I thought it was hilarious. Um, the devotee that didn't see uh, Prabhupada speaking much about humility in his books. Yeah, that but it, it, it demonstrates it demonstrates something. Yes. That you know, not everybody's having the same experience with Prabhupada's books. That's right. And and although I, I can see the point that you shouldn't play the inconceivable card, um, overplay it. I can also see that uh, maintaining the peace. You know, just letting it go. Oh yeah, but that doesn't mean it. that doesn't mean you're playing the inconceivable card. In other words, you can simply say uh, that look, there's many possible ways of understanding this, and you know, multiple understandings right. are possible and are can all be acceptable. But that doesn't mean that you're playing the inconceivable card. Okay, so. Inconceivable so the, uh, means you don't even try to explain it at all. You just say, yeah, they're all right and they're all wrong and we can't explain it. It's just inconceivable. Well, meaning, yeah, I would I mean, I wouldn't be facetious with it. I, w I would just use it, uh, uh, you know, uh, diplomatically in, in a certain situation. Like you, you didn't follow up with some devotees that couldn't appreciate your perspective so um, in, anyway there's a lot of division amongst the devotees and I think it's it's uh, in part uh, unresolvable but uh, you know I like Rupa Goswami's resolution associate with like-minded people don't mm. don't fight with people that you disagree with uh, associate with like-minded people and get strong you know develop your bhakti Yes, well, and, this also uh, ties into then, the concept that certain things 
may nourish your body, your bhakti, and certain things may impede your bhakti. And what impedes your bhakti might nourish somebody right. else's, yes. And, and the ultimate resolution is to have a guru who's connected with Krishna in real time. Yes. You know, who gives different instructions at different times. And Guru Das has a funny story. He came here to the Big Island and he was talking about his book. And uh, he was traveling with Srila Prabhupada, where Prabhupada, on a morning walk or something, asked a question to the devotees. No one could answer it, and then Prabhupada answered it. So Guru Das travels with Prabhupada to the next destination, and Prabhupada asks the same question. And after a short silence, Guru Das gives the answer, and then Prabhupada said, no. And then he gives a different answer. Yeah, I remember that story. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes indeed indeed yeah because we have a tendency to want to have the answer you know and there are some things for which there is the answer there definitely are some questions for which there is the one answer truth with a capital T you know, but it's that's not always the case. I mean, someone was just saying to me yesterday, you know, Ormila, why don't you tell the truth about this and such thing that happened? And my response was, well, my perspective on it is different. That doesn't mean I'm not telling the truth. You know, I, I just, I understand it differently, and I had a different experience with it. You know, it just... It doesn't mean that one is true and one is not true. And nor is it some kind of a chinchabeta right. tattva. You know, it's, it's neither, you know, neither of those is the case. So sometimes we want, like, the answer. And I, I found a lot of people right. taking the course in hermeneutics would say things like, oh, we expected this course to just give us all the answers to all of the, the difficult things. And I said, no, this course is to teach you how to arrive at answers that are shastrically correct but that doesn't mean you're it's always going to be the answer all right thank you, you all very much those 48 verses uh yeah those there's actually there, it's actually a book on amazon it's called bhagavad gita an illustrated introduction and the book is available on amazon it's also available as a free download on my as a pdf free download on my website under free educational Great. materials. So, yeah, you can... It's a, we have, you. And we have audio of the proper chanting of the Sanskrit of each of those 48 verses. So, yes, free PDF download, or you can purchase a free copy on Amazon. Thank you very much, Shil Prabhupada. Okay. Ki Jai. Jai. Thank you very much. Jai. Thank you very much.